Blog Talk Radio. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The unstoppable ones. You did say unstoppable, right? Yeah. You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on Mission Unstoppable. Can anyone stop these people? I don't think so. I am the unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and tonight you are about to go on another Mission Unstoppable. My guest this evening will be our guide into a world that I pray few of us will be exposed to. But as every day passes, it seems much more likely. Terrorism. Islam, Jihad, these words tend to strike fear in many of us. Since 9-11, North Americans have realized that they live in a different world. Since the mass shootings that took place on November 5, 2009 at Fort Hood, they were assured of it. Thirteen people were killed, 30 others wounded, in what some experts are claiming was an act of Jihad by an American Army psychologist, Major Nadel Hassan. The impossible lineups at the airports are now tolerated since the alternative is unthinkable. Well, tonight my guest wants you to think about terrorism. He wants you to ask yourself, ask your government if you're safe. Do we really know what's going on? Are there things that we should know? What does the media and the government hold back from us? Stay tuned, stay close, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is the unstoppable Frankie Picasso. You are listening to us on Tuesday, March the 9th. Then you are listening to the live version of the show. You are free to participate by calling into the show at 646-595-3741. Also, please join me in the chat room. The line is now open, and I can see a few folks in there, so good evening and welcome. (laughs) I'd like to take a moment to thank the good folks here at Blog Talk Radio for allowing me to broadcast over their network, and I'd especially like to thank you, you know who you are, for tuning in each and every week. My guest this evening is Dr. Jack Gresham. He's a former Air Force pilot and retired orthopedic surgeon who is now the author of four spiritually-based books entitled The Muhammad Series. 18 Billion is book number one in the series and the one that we're going to discuss this evening. During the 1980s, Jack and his wife, Mina, left Miami to establish a Western-style orthopedic surgery and rehab department within a local hospital in Saudi Arabia, a place he stayed for five years. Since then, Jack has been on many medical missions to the Ukraine, Brazil, and Africa, to mention just a few. A student of history a biblical scholar of the Old Testament. Jack has been teaching Sunday school for 40 years, and he recently finished a tour as a member of the Board of Directors for the Learning Institute for Elders, or LIFE, at the University of Central Florida. Please welcome Jack Gresham. Good evening, Jack, and welcome. Good evening. Thank you, Frankie. It's nice to be here. I have been so looking forward to speaking to you. Um, First off, I wanted to say to you that you have written a terrific thriller, now, as someone who reads upwards of a minimum of five books a week, which I do, please take this as a compliment. You have a very unique voice, and I caught myself wondering, how did this guy write this stuff? How did he know the words to say? It really was a book I couldn't put down, Jack. So wonderful, wonderful effort. And I think I told you that this is the second only fiction book in three years that I have accepted for the show. And the reason that I did this was, I believe that we would be able to open up some very interesting dialogue around the premise. The premise being that we have an international thriller involving the United States and Afghan terrorists with a twist. The Muslim leader who receives the fruits of the terrorism wants none of the money or the violence. Now, this is what caught my interest. interest. It fueled my imagination. And I think, um, you know, maybe it's best if, if you start off by telling folks the premise that you had for $18 billion and where it came from and, and why you decided to write this Mohammed series. Well, I decided to write Mohammed of Babylon because uh, I lived over there for five years, and I uh, learned to know and love many of the people over there. I also saw the dark side of their society and their culture, and uh, I could not help but believe that it's so easy for thinker, the Western mind, to become polarized so easily by looking at isolated events and coming to a conclusion that, you know, this is a way uh, we can expect, uh, this is what we can expect from over there. 
Right. Uh, but I, I came to be convinced that there are people of noble character and noble intent who live among uh, the Muslims, the Islam, uh, the, the nation Islam. But mm-hmm. I think it has been so warped by uh, many uh, tangent th- thoughts and beliefs and I don't know what else uh, to bring uh, a group of them into this uh, scheme of terrorism. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't like the polarization. I, I think it's um, – I, th- I find it very scary when, when we look at a whole group of people and say, you're all bad. <laughs> you know? But, you know, we are so we are so – we are so uh, cast into that without even having any say so over it. We, we uh, involuntarily, when we meet a, a, a Middle Eastern person on the street uh, and not know who he or she is, uh, one of the first questions that comes to our mind is, can I trust this person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to not hurt me? Yeah. I, you know, I remember being, it was probably around 1988, because um, my, my kids were little, that I, I went to, I went back to university, and I took a course career planning for women. And there was a woman in my class, and she was Egyptian Muslim, and you know she made it. She wanted us all to know, and even back then, you know, she wanted us all to know about Muslim and, and Islam and how what a peaceful book the Quran is, and um, and 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 I believed her, you know, I believed her, and I thought, yeah, I think this is well, great. There are, Anything there that are promotes people. peace is wonderful. Well, there <laughs> are they're, they're wonderful people, but it's. You know, we all we all came from the same primordial seed of humanity, and yeah. we all linked together, whether we realize it or not. And the, the the problem is, we've been brought up in in different cultures, and and people have uh, of wealth and power have used their might and strength to to warp the mind of uh, uh, individuals and whole groups of society into thinking a way that is just not right yeah well you know whenever you have extremism and these fundamentalists you know are taking a a tidbit and 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 using it to for their own gain and we'll get into that talk a little bit later with some of our other experts but let's talk about 18 billion and where the idea came from and how did you um how were you able to voice these characters because i really felt like you knew what the president was going to say and 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 what you know how how it all worked and the the federal reserve bank and all this you know, you read the book, and one one uh, person who reviewed the book said the government never makes a mistake, and he had that as a you know as a sort of a fault against the book. But really, the book is uh, idealistic. It is the way we would really like for it to happen, not necessarily the way it does uh, or will, but it is the way we would like for it to happen, and that's sure. what that's what I try to look into, project myself into. Uh, what I would like to see happen under these circumstances, although I don't, I would not like to see people get killed or hurt, but they do, and right. and that's not really liking it. That's really sort of accepting reality. But uh, it, it is, uh, it comes from uh, you know a life of uh, experience, meeting people all over the world and talking to different people and trying to understand the driving force of their, uh, their their life ambition and what their global perspective is and that sort of thing. Uh, it uh, I just sat down and started writing, and it happened. Uh, I don't know how better to say it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting um, that we do live in two very different cultures, you and I even. I live in Canada, and, and you live in the United States. And I, and I went to high school and, and university in the States, so I have some idea of what life is like there. The I find that... that Many Americans, you're unlike many Americans in that you have traveled the globe. And living in Canada is so multicultural that many days um, I question, you know, am I in, what country am I in? And, you know, we have street signs in Urdu and Greek and German and, you know, Chinese and everything. So um, it is a very different culture here. I walk down the street and I see turbans of every color. I see saris. I see, uh, you know, a very heavy Asian influence. Well, it's that it's that way that the, the world is being amalgamated, uh, culturally speaking, and it's very hard for the people who are trying to control the minds and the thinking of individuals uh, and groups of individuals. It's becoming more and more difficult for them to manage that uh, in the light of the amount of knowledge and uh, the the amount of information that is available around the world. 
you just can't hide in a corner anywhere on this earth, uh, hardly, except in maybe very remote situations. But anywhere you go and find a group of people, although they may be culturally oriented in a specific line, there are those among them who are questioning, who are looking, who are seeking, and you'll find them everywhere. And mm-hmm. the people who would uh, uh, control the, the, the minds of uh, of uh, uh, groups of people are finding it more and more difficult to to manage that influx of information that's coming to the people that they want to think a certain way, but having trouble getting to getting them to do it. How um, when About you were that. over in in Saudi, how uh, what years? What those were in the eighties. So what was, was life 80, like 80. then? In the, yeah, well, what was life like it then? Was, it was very it was very secure. We we never feared for ourselves. We lived in a very well-protected uh, compound. They took they took care of us because we were providing them with some high-tech Western uh, medicine, and and they didn't want anything to happen to us. Of course. Now, was this at a time when women were had to cover their head? Were they wearing burqas, or were they were they off? They they uh, most of the the Bedouin women, in particular, were uh, uh, the uh, head covering and the face covering. Right. Uh, in the big cities, uh, all the women wore head covers, but very few of them wore face covers. According, it depended upon circumstances. It depended upon their family and what their family line was, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of other factors. But uh, okay. my my wife wore the the the, uh, the head covering, and uh, we we were standing in line at the, at the uh, Saudi Air airline waiting for our baggage to go through, about number 20 back in line. And this uh, distinguished-looking Saudi gentleman walked up and asked my wife, why are you wearing your head covered? Mm-hmm. And so she explained to him that she was just trying to respect their culture and the way they live and, and, uh, and you know, to, to feel to feel that, uh, let them know that she accepted them and wanted to be accepted by them. So he grabbed both of us by our hands. Said, "Come with me." He took us to a private room and served us tea. We we didn't stand any line in, in line anymore until the plane came. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! So, you know, it's just little things like that just yeah. uh, stick in your mind. Do people, you know, there, I, I watched a wonderful movie, and if you, I don't know if you've seen it yet, if you have a chance to see it, whoever's listening, my name is Khan. Please go and see that movie. And in the movie, you know, he, he this young man has Asperger's, and, and you know, uh, on the, I guess the. Um, the lower end of, of autism, and, and, and his mother explained to him that there's only good people and bad people in the world. And, mm-hmm. and she said, you know, here's a man with a sword, stick figures, here's a man with a sword, and here's a man with a, a, a lollipop. Which one's the good man? He goes, the one with the lollipop. And she said, okay, now which one's the Muslim? You know, and which, one, which one's the Hindu? And he goes, I don't know. She goes, that's right, because there's only good people and bad people. And, and, and it was just such a wonderful movie, just amazing. Yeah. yeah, it was a great lesson, a really great lesson. So this Muhammad, the Muhammad of Babylon, your central character, who is um, a peaceful man, he believes in peace, he's, he's been uh, educated around the world, and he's come back to, uh, where did he go back, to Saudi or Afghanistan? Back to Iraq, Iraq. Iraq. And, and, Baghdad. But yeah, you see, and, we, we, we will only see him in the first 37 years of his life, uh, which are the sort of feeling your way out years of your life until you get to the point where you want to really, you know, express yourself or find your find the meaning in your life. When in your younger years you're so busy about accomplishing and, and making do and and gathering and amassing. But the other three books, uh, you will see him as he goes through two different walks in life, one of which is very dark. Uh so uh the possibilities of uh of uh, life endeavor is uh, is not all expressed in this one book. It, it just mm. basically opens him to the door that he will come to make a choice between one or two doors. Of course, wow. he chooses the good door to start with, but as only can be done in fiction, we bring him back and make him choose that second door. Sure, sure. Goes into the blackness of his life. Well, in the first book, eighteen billion, <laughs> he's <laughs> he's the prophesied redeemer of Islam, and and. It's- a man who it's follows a story. It's, way. it's a great story because it, it's almost complete. Uh, yeah. it, it takes you up to a point where he has he has accomplished that, and and he has he has actually blooded his hands a little bit 
with uh, some of the things that he had to do to to maintain his own security, and also to uh, uh, you know rise up against the uh, terrorist activity and actually uh, come to battle with it a little bit. And you will see. So, that. so let's tell folks a little bit about the book. Muhammad is is we've already told you who he is. Now in the United States, there's um, a group, a cell group, um, who, people who were actually born in America. And at a certain point in time, uh, their families left, and these guys got a hold of some nuclear weapons and decided to steal $18 billion from the National Reserve Bank. And they did that successfully, and they gave that money to Muhammad. And here is his, you know, this is where this is where you know the tire, really you know, the rubber hits the road. What do I what do I do with it? How do I handle this situation? A man who uh, these were extremists, fundamentalists who wanted them to, you know. Build you know terrorist weapons and go go get the bad guy the United States and and he's thinking no I need to return this money this is a stolen money how do I do that and still be seen as the redeemer of of, of Islam still being faithful to those who want to follow yeah how do you do it's, that uh, it, it's it's he's he's put on he's put on a sharp edge and uh, it it's interesting how he manages it it's sort of uh, uh, you know it's it runs a course that is uh, sort of didactic in many ways, and uh, it doesn't have a lot of uh, plot to it, but it, it is. It does have some, but it's just a systematic type of thing that he has to go through with to get to where he wants to go. And he realizes what he wants to do and how he wants to do it, and he does it. Interesting. It is very interesting. <laughs> Your characters are interesting. Well, you know, the the six Afghan refugees, second generation in America – they were all of them were um, accepted into society, and mm-hmm. their neighbors looked upon them as being, you know, uh, good people. You know, Americans. People. And yet they were all they were meeting surreptitiously uh, at, at rather irregular intervals, but always looking for the point in time where they could step out of their uh, facade or their role of citizenry into the. Uh, into the walk in life for which they feel they were really dedicated. Interesting, yeah. It, and, and it they is find, interesting. And it finally happens. Yeah. And it happens so what makes you think a, that, that, that the media and the government aren't telling citizens everything? Well, they shouldn't. They, they can't tell us everything because if they tell us everything, they also tell our enemies everything. Stop and mm-hmm. think about it. Yeah. They, they, That's true, I, I, and, and you have, have a big run on, you know, people be scared. Well, that's that's true, but if you tell your enemy all that you know, what advantage mm-hmm. do you have over him? Right. That's true. I mean, it's it's sort of it's really sort of a, a cutthroat type of situation, but the uh, and you'll see it even in the book where certain information is withheld and. And of course, the, the president never tells the American public of his dealing with Mohammed to restore that stolen money back to the New York Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that never comes public, and and you'll see that is, and you say, well, you know, it probably shouldn't. It now, probably how did, how did you come up with that that recovery? That was brilliant. <laughs> it's uh, I don't know. It just happened. I mean, uh, being an Air Force pilot and having flown back and forth between the states and the Middle East and every other places, uh, I knew that somehow uh, an air scene had to be in, involved in the whole scheme of things. And, and only the only way to con- connect uh, uh, the East Coast of the United States with Baghdad is through the air. It's not across the sea. It's not, you know, it's not any other way. It's You've got to fly to get there. Mm-hmm. So uh, and and McGuire Air Force Base was my home base for three years, and I knew the base and and you know I I could see planes coming and going and you know it, it it's it was very easy for me to picture that whole scenario and very easy uh, with uh, minimal research into the capabilities of various types of aircraft and that sort of thing, but uh, for me it was easy and I enjoyed doing it. <laughs> Yeah, I bet you did. What? Um, how long did it take you to research this book and put it together? Actually, I didn't do a whole lot of researching. I, I did research uh, uh, quite a bit of the stuff about intelligence and about uh, 
the Air Force uh, equipment that's used in the transfer of the money. And what about a the little bit in, A little bit about the uh, uh, President's uh, National Security Council. Uh, most of that's available on the web, but you have to dig it out and read it and, uh, you know. Did you speak to anybody in, in, in office or power? No. No. Wow. And what about the investment? I mean, Muhammad, you know, I mean, he, he paid back this. He, he got to keep a whole lot of money. He kept all the interest of this money. And, and so good. how did you come up with that? Yeah, he did really well. Um, well he gave it back, but, you know, the man made fortune. You know, it's uh, it's a little bit of uh, the market mentality of uh, of the Eastern mind. They don't mind doing you a favor, but uh, they should make a little bit of money on it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's the price the, is never the price, that's, right? That's the ultimate merchant mind, uh, yeah. philanthropic merchant mind, I might say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Even here, you know, you, I go to an Indian bazaar, and it's, it's like you never expect to pay the price it's out, and they never expect to pay the price. You know, you sell them a house or something, but but wait, I, I need a better deal. <laughs> well, you know, when we lived in Saudi Arabia, my wife went down to the souk, which is the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Well, they had the vegetables and all that stuff, and and I'd be working in the hospital. She'd take the bus down to the souk with the bus, and she learned she learned the merchants in the souk. They 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 learned her, and she learned them. She went in one day to buy some vegetables, and she says, "I want two kilos of the green, the lettuce." And so mm-hmm. the the uh, merchant put it on the scale and balanced it, and handed it to her, and she shook her finger. She said, "You had one kilo on the scales, not two. Oh wow. <laughs> He was, you know, he was just trying to see if he could, if he could do it, and he, and when he got caught, he thought it was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding! That's funny. We, well, that's we, a we difference just, in culture, isn't it? If I yeah, teach you and, and, and I get yeah. away with it, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Especially yeah. Uh, with, uh, get away with it with an infidel. He would never do that to another uh, Muslim, but but for an infidel, no. it's 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 uh, it's a free ticket. Who was in power when you went there? Well, King Fahad came to power. Uh, the one before him was his older brother, King, uh, what's his name? I forget. And then there's Abdullah now. And, of course, uh, there there were five brothers that uh, were the central leaders of the government who were the five sons of King Saud, you know. And uh, I met three of them, I think, at different times, four of them at different times. Uh, and... Uh, now, was, did you travel around the Middle East while you were there? I imagine you did. No, I, oh, you didn't? They, really? Uh, they did not want me to. They did not want me to go. I, I had I tried to make some. I did go to Bahrain once. Mm-hmm. Of course, I could never go to Israel. Once no? I got an Israel visa on my passport, I would never get back in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but where we traveled mostly was in uh, Asia and uh, Europe and Africa and we didn't go down to South America much, but mostly in Europe and Asia and uh, Africa. We did a lot wow. of traveling in those countries, yes. What an interesting life. And your wife enjoyed well, it there. Well, my wife has uh, is sort of like if I come home, uh, I say, uh, are, do you, do you want to go somewhere? And she doesn't say where. She says when, you know. Cool. And do you got, did you drink alcohol at all? No, we don't. My wife and I have never, never been. Uh, well, we're teetotalers, okay. So, uh-huh. okay. Well, that works then. So, no problem. But we had the <laughs> opportunity that you know it's available. Oh, really? It's against the law, but it's available. Don't kid yourself. Right. And what about drugs? Were drugs prevalent? No. 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 No, they were not. Uh, there are a lot of things that they real lot people. If you get caught, if you have an accident. And you're a drunk driving, and you have an accident. You go to jail. You don't go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and and in uh, prayer time, everybody, the bells ring in the hospitals well, everywhere. What happens? Yes. Well, I think there are certain concessions given to people when they're ill and are not and are immobile. But mm-hmm. uh, all the the workers in the hospital uh, try to go, but when you can't, everybody can't go to prayer call. And leave the hospital uh, empty, you know. So people who provide care and services to others uh, have to take some exemptions from some of the five calls of pair. But if they're not working and have no obligations, they they are they're expected to go. 
and they do, I think. When is um when is the, the what's the next book called in the series? Next it's called A Tree of the Desert. Okay, and it, when is that available? That hopefully will be another six months from now uh, or so. But uh, I will have my it just www.jackgresham.com. I have a web page. You can just check in on it every now and then and see what's offered. Okay. Well, to the folks in the chat room, I just want to say hello again and welcome. If you wanted to join the show, you can give us a call at 646-595-3741. If you have a question, type it in the chat room window. I'm going to refresh. Maybe you have. And um, we can ask Jack. How about that? I do have a couple of guests that we're going to be bringing on right about now. And... um, so I'm going to bring them on because I can't really tell the phone numbers. We'll find out who's who. And then we'll have a, a dialogue and a discussion, and hopefully all of you will, will join us in that. Okay, let me see here. I'm thinking this number here. Hello, is this Holland? It sure is. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Frankie. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for, for hanging on there and holding on. I really appreciate that. I this is uh, the voice belongs to C. Holland Taylor. He's the uh, chairman and CEO of Lib for All Foundation, and he is a renowned expert on Islam and the process of Islamization, if that's a word in Southeast Asia. And uh, you've lived, studied, and worked in the Middle East and Indonesia for um, wow, for over four decades. Yeah, off and on for over four decades, not continuously. Yes, and your um, organization has its home in North Carolina, I believe. North Carolina, the Netherlands, and Indonesia. Okay. And you were co-founder of this with the late Indonesian president, Wahid. And, and I think you guys did that in 2003. Is correct. that correct? Yes. Okay. And your your organization, um, the premise of it is to what? Uh, the premise is interesting in what <clears throat> you and Jack have been talking about, that there is a spectrum of views within Islam. Islam is not a monolithic religion or belief system. And that spectrum of views <clears throat> ranges from what we see manifested in violent acts uh, stemming from ideology of supremacy and hatred. And that's in the newspapers every day. But in reality, the vast majority of Muslims um, do not share that ideology. And in fact, there are many very powerful Muslim leaders around the world who have a profoundly pluralistic, tolerant, and spiritual understanding of Islam. And what we do is we identify, mobilize, encourage, and support such Muslim leaders in order to marginalize and discredit the extremists who seek to dominate Muslim societies around the world and bring it into headlong conflict with the West. Now, folks can go to your website as we're talking. I think it's www.libforall.org. Is that correct? That's correct. Lib, as in liberty, L-I-B-F-O-R-A-L-L.org. Fantastic. Okay, I'm just going to bring our next guest on so the three of us can have a little chat with four of us here. Frank, good evening. Bonjour. Good evening. I should say bonne nuit. Frank Romano. Hey, I got it. Very good. <laughs> Yes, was held by an extremist Muslim sect 30 years ago in Morocco and was somehow able to resist the brainwashing and escape from the jihadist group. He later wrote of his experiences in his book, Storm Over Morocco. He also managed to turn this horrific life experience around in a real positive way by working for interfaith peace in the Middle East, and you actively organize and participate in interfaith events involving Jews, Muslims, and Christians in Israel and in Palestine. You are an assistant tenured professor at the University of Paris. Um, wow, you have this amazing, you know, you have a law degree uh, from university um, in, in Sorbonne, in, in San Fran- in Par- uh, the Golden Gate University in San Francisco. You teach law, literature, history, and philosophy at the University of Paris, and you practice law both in, in France and in the United States. Wow, fantastic. Welcome. Wow. Thank you. Both of you. Well, all of you. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. Jack, would you be interested in, in, in uh, starting this dialogue off? Well, I think you have two experts, and I, I am not an expert. Uh, I, I'm a writer of But you brought us all together. You're the re- raison d'etre. Right? And I really appreciate the uh, CV of the two that are, uh, Holland and uh, Frank, that are with us, and, and I admire I admire the, some of the words that they are speaking are, are just part of the words that I used in writing my my, my fiction series, and especially the second book, uh, Frank. You would uh, you would find a, uh, a real kindred spirit, I think, in my second book if it ever gets out. Mm-hmm. 
It'll get well, good luck with that. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. But I really, I feel that um, Holland um, and Jack and myself, and uh, of course, uh, Frankie, you're, you brought us together originally. It's because of you were together here too. Is that I think we're on the same page in a way because even though Holland, you sound, you and I sound like we, we, we have uh, maybe different ways for the same purpose of bringing people together and kind of tempering the um, extremism in the world. But then. Your book, uh, Jack, um, touches upon also that this world is not a monolithic world. I mean, the, the characters that you present, and I think that all works together, and uh, people will read uh, the fiction as well as the nonfiction and will do the, the peace marches, but I think it will work together, hopefully, in tempering the, te- the extremism and also showing and sharing with the world that it's it's not what the people think. It's not Islam is not... Quotes, unquote, a violent religion, and all Muslims uh, are 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 uh, willed to um, uh, fanaticism. And I think we are on the same page in that way. I think so too. But it seems to you me. No, I, I interviewed um, Marina Nemeth. She wrote the book Prisoner of Tehran. I don't know if either of you or any of you have read that book or not. She was um, she was about 16 years old when she was prison in prison for three years in in probably the, the most infamous prison in Tehran. And, you know, she now lives in Canada, and, and, and she's married and remarried and has her family here. The fact that a government, you know, it went from the president to the Ayatollah, and the fact that a government can all of a sudden one day just change everything from, you know, you have your head uncovered, now your face has to be covered, now, you know, everything you say and do is, is spied upon. It has to be horrific for those folks who, who can't get out. You know, they don't know anything other than what they know. You don't know what you don't know. So how do you change what you don't know? Does that make sense? It does make sense. Do you want to try that first, Holland or Jack? Or? Me, I you, listen to you. I listen to you're, the, you're the talking right still. there about what happens when uh, extremists get a hold of a government. And as Mao said, power grows from the barrel of a rifle. And whenever you mm-hmm. have a totalitarian, whatever the ideology of that totalitarian, it could be a Nazi, it could be a communist, it could be an Islamist, <clears throat> whenever you have a totalitarian seizing con- tr- complete control of the repressive apparatus of the state, it creates an extremely difficult, perhaps the most difficult situation for producing social change. And what's happening in the Muslim world is twofold um, in regards to this. You have certain repressive states that do have such an ideology, and then you have an ideology, and you have both the Shia manifestation, in some cases you have a Sunni manifestation of that phenomenon, but then you also have the spread of radical ideology, which aspires to having that power. And it's just it's, it's inherent in human nature that uh, some human beings seek to spread love to others and uh, derive satisfaction from allowing other people freedom to express uh, and blossom as human beings, but then there are always human beings who derive their satisfaction in life from dominating. And we know this from every culture, every civilization in the world. We have to recognize that this takes different forms, and it's, uh, it's fundamentally a threat to the citizens of such a state, but it's a threat to humanity at large. And there's no simple one-size-fits-all uh, package or formula for addressing such a threat. Uh, it really requires a coherent global strategy operating at multiple levels involving people of goodwill of every faith and nation and not simply private actors but governments as well. Today in the news, there's um, a Muslim woman in Quebec. She was kicked out of a language course. She was in a French language course for the second time because of her refusal to remove her religious face covering. We're a tolerant country. You know, we're probably the most multicultural company, you know, country in the world. And yet we see this as I believe we see this as as a form of terrorism, you know, for her, from from her husband, from her family, that she must cover herself. We want to help her, you know, in our hearts and minds. We say, take that thing off your face, you know, show your face to the world. What do you think? So she was wearing a burqa. uh, She was wearing the burqa and the face and the face shield. The burqa they probably could have, you know. (laughs) The burqa does cover the face. Uh, Yeah, the job is is the head cover. That that slip. And mm-hmm. and she was wearing this, and she was asked to, to either show her face or leave. Mm-hmm. But what, I think what you're manifesting, Frankie, is, is is very similar to what the French government's doing here. I'm actually calling from Paris here, and um, the French um, 
have rules that you probably have heard of, uh, Holland and Jack as well, uh, that up until the end of high school, uh, there cannot be any religious manifestation. And the, those that are targeted the most, of course, are the, the, the girls who wear the hijab. I haven't heard of any wearing the burqa at the high schools here. Uh, but the thing is um, that what you said, Frankie, is, is, is sort of um, uh, puzzling to the extent it's, it's similar to the, what the French government says, protecting her uh, from what? Uh, because often uh, I think it's, it's, it's a misunderstood, uh, I believe, by the French people, the non-Muslim French people, that they think that they're, they're being forced to wear these things. And so they do, uh, as a patriarchic society I live in, far more patriarchic than the American society, um, feel that they must take it uh, in their powers to um, protect the girl, where in reality, often, uh, she's made that decision voluntarily. I don't know if there can be voluntary in that society, mm. though. You know, I look on the streets in the summertime, and, the, and, mm-hmm. and their husbands are wearing shorts, wife beaters, sandals, and she's covered mm-hmm. from head to toe in black. She's got to be sweating her, you know, her butt off mm-hmm. in the heat. Right. How is it that, that he can come into the 20th century <laughs> or the 21st century right. And, and, and she's left 2,000 years behind. I don't I want to monopolize this because I'm sure Holland and um, Jack yeah, have ideas about this. But jump in, please. I, I, just, I just don't think that um, – I think if you take it case by case. Um, you talk to those ladies and they say, look, this is my culture. I accept it. Um, I'm warm in this, but I'm used to it. Others will say, no, I'm imposed upon it. But then what, is, what right does a government have to make a blanket rule to make it illegal? for a young girl to wear a hijab in high school, generally making that decision that they are being imposed and we're protecting them. I think, I think the government goes too far there. Well, we have First Amendment rights in this country that uh, sort mm-hmm. of obviate right. the type of legislation. But it, right. it, you are, it, is, it is for a fact that uh, many of the women who wear these do it because mm-hmm. they recognize it as part of their culture, they're proud mm-hmm. of it, and they have no problem with it. Uh, yeah. But with the rapid uh, spread of uh, of information and uh, knowledge that is going around the world today, uh, there are those who look upon it as a burden, as an infringement upon their rights. And there mm-hmm. is a cultural revolution going on, and it's very difficult for those who, uh, especially the, the male-dominated uh, government, it's very difficult for them to feel that they have control the kind of control they really want if they let the women do just do what they want to and let it go at that. They won't do it mm-hmm. because they are afraid that they will lose their, their control and their power over this people who uh, who they feel need to be controlled, need to be monitored, need to be uh, channeled into a cultural path that is uh, from ancient times and, and should not be changed uh, for whatever reason. And I don't know mm-hmm. what their thinking is. I mean, I think for any group of men to sit down and think that they can legislate laws that will control the minds and thoughts of women, they're crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, okay, let, let's it. look at it as, as a government yeah. thing. If you're going to come to my country, these are our rules. Respect our rules or go back where you came from. That I can understand. Mm-hmm. No problem. You know, we, we, had, we have Sikhs here who, for religious reasons, wear, wear knives, and they wanted their children to wear these religious knives in school. Should they be the only ones allowed to wear knives and have knives in school? What about the other kids with their switchblades? Because it's a religious, a religious, you know, ornament. It's still a dangerous ornament. They can't have that. That that's, you know, that's where when you come into another culture, like when we lived over in Saudi Arabia for five years, we respected their culture. Mm-hmm. We didn't eat pork. We didn't brew sadiki in our bathtub. Uh, we didn't do a lot of things that their society in general frowns upon, but in fact, if the truth were known, undercurrent that was going on to some degree at any rate. But we, I feel like that if you go to another country that has an established culture, you ought to uh, recognize it and respect it. I don't care whether it's one way or the other. If they come over here, uh, they should respect our culture and our society. If we go over there, we should do the same. The trouble is, uh, most Americans don't have much respect for other mm-hmm, cultures. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Well, I think Holland can talk about that because mm-hmm. you know you've lived all of those Daniel places. Holland, tell us about Holland. Uh, well, you know, on the issue of um, dress, is an extremely problematic issue, <clears throat> and it's not a universal um, 
situation. You have women who uh, believe that it's a religious obligation under Islam and voluntarily cover themselves to greater or lesser degrees. You also have a widespread phenomenon where it becomes unsafe for women in many cities in Europe, for example, um, where there's Muslim populations. That's unsafe for a woman. There's some places in Europe where even Western women are covering themselves up increasingly to avoid oh, really? harassment by uh, males, immigrant males, um, because it's becoming unsafe for even Western women not to be covered in some places. And so you have a situation where there is a violation of uh, individual freedom in the name of social conformity, and you also have a situation where the extreme veiling, like the niqab, where you only have the eyes visible, it's a political statement. It's becoming quite widespread in the United Kingdom, but it's an expression of a politicized understanding of Islam and a politicized understanding of Islam that's demanding a place within the United Kingdom and demanding the imposition of their understanding of Sharia among Muslim populations in the U.K. And all I'd like to, uh, Holland, I'd like to just add on to that, that there's been perverse consequences of the legislation in France to the extent that since the rules came out that uh, you, you could not uh, manifest any um, religious sim symbols, and not just the hijab, also the, the, the cross should not be too uh, visible, uh, but the, the perverse uh, re uh, consequences are many of the uh, Muslim girls that were not uh, required to wear the hijab are now wearing it, simply to tell the government, you can't tell me not to wear it. So I think it's having perverse results in this country. Right. Well, wow, I think we, we all went through that in the 60s here, right? Yeah. What <laughs> you see in my book, let's get back to my book. You, are, yeah. you see one, one sentence, one, one, one chapter or one paragraph that mm -hmm. relates to the women's dress. Yeah. I see. Well, well, I do. I, you know, it's coming, speaking about your book, uh, Jack, um, I, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about not to change the subject, but to kind of evolve the subject in a different theme that I think is an important theme. And you talk about the uh, the, the Islamic jihadists, and I and I did read an interview I had, and uh, it, it, it asks you what inspired you to write the 18 billion. And in the interview, I don't know if they wrote this down right. So you correct me if they did. Uh, you said, yes, I'm convinced that there are Muslims of noble character who are torn between allegiance to their faith and wanting to hold on to a certain moral convictions. And I was wondering what, what you think about what, what jihad means and where it comes from, and if you believe that most Muslims uh, have a will to jihad, or is, is, is jihad a violent and a non-violent jihad? I don't think jihad is even mentioned in the Quran. Um, well, you know, I didn't think it is, but I have checked. The, my version of the Quran does say the word jihad, but perhaps um, not. A, yeah, it does say that it does manifest the word. Not exactly how that's pronounced. Close to the word, the pronunciation of jihad. Well, it does I'm, say it. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I haven't read. I haven't studied that much, but I've been mm -hmm. told that it's not a. It's not to be found. Uh, Maybe not easily, but anyway. No. It has a different meaning for different peoples, and it is for some uh, uh, the overall international Islamization of human society. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it is a global perspective type of thing. Others uh, look at it as uh, their own circle of influence where they live and where they want to live and and what they want to believe and do and perhaps even share with others, but not really coerce them. But there's been so much coercion, uh, so many wars, and such uh, brutal uh, loss of life by those who uh, say they are sponsoring uh, jihad, that is, the... Islamization of the uh, uh, of the world or, or wherever they can go, that that's what it really means to most of us in America today. But I don't think, Jack, Islamization uh, being Islam. That, that's my 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 question is I don't think jihad necessarily violent jihad represents Islam. Is what I'm saying is, is so. that's another. I don't think no, it does. it's another. I don't. No, I, I, I agree don't with so. you. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Well, the term, I agree with the you, term, but, but it is you. It is being used that way. It is mm -hmm. being used that way. Yeah, and it we, is. we perceive Colin, it. You want to say something? Yes. 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 The the term oh, jihad means to exert strenuous, uh, sincere effort 
to achieve a noble purpose for the sake of God. That's what it literally means. Now, different people have different interpretations within an Islamic context as to what a noble purpose consists of. The classic definitions, one often in Islam hears reference to the greater jihad and the lesser jihad. The greater jihad being a spiritual endeavor to overcome the base nature of the self and um, achieve closeness to God, whereas the lesser jihad is often referred to as engaging in war. And now, how does the, the virgins, these 72 virgins, come into this? Ah, the virgins. Greater are, or lesser? Uh, they would come in with the lesser jihad, but okay. the thing is that within an Islamic context and what's happening mm-hmm. in the Muslim world today, but it's not divorced from the historical understanding of jihad that occurred at the time of the Ottoman Empire with the expansion mm-hmm. of the Arabs out of the Arabian Peninsula and the conquest of much of the Middle East and North Africa, that historically back to a very early time in Islam, there was also the association of the term jihad with the expansion of Islam and with violence and with warfare. And those who are committing terrorist acts today are um, seeking to convince the vast majority of Muslims around the world and to compel those who do not agree to support an understanding of jihad, which is militant, supremacist, and violent. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the crusade. Those, those people that they want to change, they, do they classically call them infidels? I mean, uh, when I look at the Islam, I see them seeing, seeing the world as two classes of piece of people. Either you are a Muslim or you're an infidel, and there's and not much is- in-between ground. Right now, but this, right. this yes, this you're right. And those who are engaged in the violent jihad today and the terrorists do label all their opponents, whether Muslim or non-Muslim. They label them infidels, and this is why you have in Iraq, for example, or in Afghanistan and Algeria in the 90s, you have situations where large numbers of Muslims are killed by their fellow Muslims. They're um, declared apostates exactly. and infidels, and they're massacred. But there's another dimension within Islam. The people that we work with at Libfrol Foundation, <clears throat> their concept of infidel is in entirely different because their definition of infidel and they trace it back to the Quran back to the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad they have a very strong theological argument as well they maintain that an infidel is one whose heart is closed to the good and the truth which all people instinctively recognize and a person who is a Christian may actually be a believer and a Muslim and this is actually very very important to realize and most people in the West as well as many Muslims themselves do not realize that the Quran in using the term Islam it does not refer to a formal religion it refers to a state of being of closeness to and surrender to God and a Muslim in the Quran is not a follower of the Prophet Muhammad, it's an individual who is experiencing that state of surrender to God, a spiritual state of surrender to God. And the people that we work with at Liberal Foundation, the Muslim theologians, <clears throat> clearly use the term Muslim and Islam and infidel and so forth in this original Quranic context. And this is part of the struggle. When you have people using these terms in this way, they inherently have a spiritual, pluralistic, and tolerant understanding of Islam. And they often regard an individual who is Christian or Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist even as more Muslim than someone who is nominally Muslim simply because they've said the confession of faith. I like I like the way you use that, Holland. That idea that those that follow that I that 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 fear that philosophy of um, of, of submitting to a cosmic truth uh, through it's almost like through love and through understanding as opposed to war. Uh, that person, uh, even though it does not confess him or herself to be a Muslim can be considered by some Muslims as 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 uh, Muslim. And you know, it works both ways. I remember when I escaped um, uh, you know, my book uh, that was re- referred to by Frankie Stormo from Morocco. I, I escaped from this mosque in, in Morocco. I was, hid, I was hidden by a uh, Muslim group downtown Casablanca that were enemies of this uh, very politi- politicized jihadist group that held me prisoner. And the the man, uh, everything he did, you could almost you, you could almost say that he was very much of a Christian. I mean, everything he did in a very positive light. He was very yeah. giving, charitable, loving, uh, and and um, believed in nonviolence and so forth. As at least some people interpret the New Testament as as 
focusing on what Jesus said through nonviolence, through love, and turn the other cheek. And yet, this man never knew anything about uh, Jesus and was not a Christian. And yet, you could call him in a way like a Christian, uh, at least in, 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 in literally acting the, yeah. the the philosophy of Jesus without even knowing about the text. So it kind of works that way too. I, I, I like that approach. Well, what Holland says right. really, what Holland says really uh, parallels the teachings of. Uh, Paul in the New Testament when he wrote the book of Romans and he said when people who are not of Israel do what the law commands by the way they live and 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 the way they act and the way they believe their faith they become a part of Israel or God's family which was the broader aspect of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, Israel in the eyes of Paul but uh, it uh, it does. Even even Christ Himself said that I have sheep of other pastures. We 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 sometimes, as Christians, uh, can get as much a narrowed view of our faith as some of the Muslim people do of theirs, especially in in their concept of changing the world to their way of thinking. I agree. Well, what that. you're saying, Jack, it's I think is fundamental Christians. toward. I agree. I think what you're saying, uh, Jack, is fundamental then. And I think what you're also, what you said by your allusion to uh, someone who's not a Muslim that could be considered a Muslim, at least in believing and submitting to God and the truth, uh, is, is fundamental to the interfaith work that I've been trying to do. Because um, uh, I've been going back and forth to the Middle East from Paris, from to Israel, and um, and to the West Bank, and I think Holland, you, you seem like your group is very active, and and the interfaith movement is is sort of a a, a fundamental concept of uh, bringing bringing groups together, uh, even though uh, Muslims are sitting, uh, Orthodox Muslim is sitting right next to an Orthodox Jew, uh, that seems to break the ice. That theory that we are God's children. And that we have fundamental beliefs that are very similar, as opposed to polarizing us. That the religious and some politicians, religious leaders and some politicians, attempt to do. And I think it's for all about money, power, and greed. That, as you were talking about, Holland, our, I think one of our goals is to is to temper this uh, this view, which tends to polarize and and exacerbate hate, uh, and 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 work together. I, I see religion as, as something that keeps people apart instead of brings them together. And mm-hmm. I, I like the, the spirituality, the idea of spirituality, the idea of, of believing in God um, is, is one that we can all believe in. It, it, you know, there, there doesn't have to be dogma and doctrine uh, that goes with that when you, when you believe that we're all God's children and, and that um, there is one God. The Middle East, the problem in the Middle East, I, I, I can't foresee a solution there. You have 2,000 years of fighting because you have hardheads, you know, who aren't <laughs> going to give up their beliefs for anything other than, I don't know, for, you know, you, you kill people and you bomb people and you shoot people and you keep doing it, expecting a different result. And, you know, so far there hasn't been a different result and there's not going to be a different result. Well, so how do, how do we end this? How do we, we end this? We don't. We don't quit. We don't. Mind. Not the way it's going. We have to realize that uh, the man, the human mind, the human, the human pe- the people on Earth do not have the answer to the Middle East problem. They never, they haven't had it in the past. They never will. The only solution mm-hmm. for the Middle East is a divine solution. But that solution does work through the human family. It does mm-hmm. work through men and women who dedicate themselves to peace and in the ways of right and and faith in in God. And that is the way it works. But it, what what really works is is a divine is a divine plan. It's not a human plan. I'm sorry. I think it's very interesting what what Jack is saying there. You were saying, Frankie, earlier about religion mm-hmm. dividing. Religion. Every religion has at least two very clear aspects. That has an outer dogmatic element, which is different from every other religion and does divide. But religions also have a spiritual essence. They have an inner spiritual dimension, which is evoking and enlivening love and kindness and respect and encouraging and instructing people to act as a blessing and not a curse for humanity. So people very often use religion in, for self-aggrandizement, to justify themselves. To they, they call upon religion to justify a political conflict. <clears throat> but I very much agree with what Jack was just saying, because 
the divine element here is something which works through the spirituality which is present within human beings and the solution to these conflicts in the middle east is by taking the um, shifting away from self-aggrandizement politics and the abuse of religion for political purposes and restoring religion to its true function which is to bring human beings closer to god what well, you and I think you that is the divine a, a I think conference. Yeah. I just want to just get this one in. You hosted a Holocaust yeah. conference, Holland. Yes. Yes. Um because because there were some Islamists who were saying that the Holocaust didn't happen. Correct. This week we have, you know, the president about to go off to the Middle East and and they're saying um in in Tehran that September 11th is a big lie. That that never happened. That this was made up for you know on TV uh, for as a as a um, a method to to go to war with Iran. But but Frankie, let me just interject here that um, the being in denial. I think we're talking about being in denial over these events is not the solution. We need to recognize what has happened, and and through uh, direct effort and and as Jack said, through divine, of course, and, and human beings manifesting divine will. The change is going to come through slowly, and a lot of people feel like you do, Frankie, in the Middle East, is absolutely it's never going to happen, but they said the same thing about Ireland, and even though definitely different sets of circumstances, there are some similarities. It's starting to work together now there, and using it as a model through time and change of generation and through constant effort, as Holland was suggesting, I think... There will be a durable peace eventually in the Holy Land. It probably won't be in our lifetimes, but I think planting seeds now is what we can do in, in the name of God, in the, in the name well, of God's as, light, as in the name of understanding. Want, as as the Palestinians want to get the Israelis out, and in the, in, the Israelis want to get the Palestinians out, and the world believes that the mm-hmm. Palestinians should have that little strip of land, and the, Isra- and the Israelis have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. You know, Why don't the rest of the Arabians take the Palestinians in? I don't understand that. You know, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's been an issue that's been um, uh, cited a lot. But they have their own internal problems, and I think um, it's not just about them wanting to, the, the conflict to continue. That might be part of it. Obviously, by absorbing all these Palestinians, theoretically, they'll have their own little part of Saudi Arabia, and the, the, the conflict will be over because they'll have their, their national territory. I think it's far more complicated than that, Frankie, and I think it's because, um, the, you know, there, I think Saudi Arabia has its own problems, and Egypt as well. A lot of the Middle Eastern countries simply have enough Palestinians already, like Jordan, and uh, the Palestinians, of course, they, you do have some extremist sectors that they don't want to um, inherit. So it's, it's complicated, and, and I, I understand that issue, and it's a difficult one. <laughs> it's hard to understand it. Yeah, I understand. Oh, who I wants the bad boys? <laughs> Nobody. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we need a maybe we need a, a new religion, just one where everybody. And, and I think we're getting to that. You know, you hear a lot about spirituality and metaphysical and mm-hmm. and all of this. People are, are looking for their 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 purpose and their sense of self. Um, going internal now, you know, more so than mm-hmm. external. Yeah. But you know, Jack, you're you're a, um, a, a historian, and, and and as I said, you you studied the Bible and the Old Testament, and you believe that the end of time will come from the Middle East. I, I believe that too. Well, there is an apocalyptic aspect to the scriptures that we cannot ignore. Uh, but one thing I've told my Sunday school class over the years, that God did not invent religion. Man did. That's right. Uh, and we have to rise above that human humanistic influence into the spiritual spiritual mind of the person and, and help them to look to the real deeper realization that God is with them. That uh, his presence is with them, and 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 when the individual realizes that God will not go away, God will not leave them, that that they can live in whatever circumstances they may be implanted, no matter what the conditions of life are, whether it be a particular religious culture or whatever, uh, you can live there, you can become a part of it, but you still have that right in in the deepest part of your heart to uh, exercise your own faith and your own belief in the convictions that uh, what God has given us in the way of belief and faith has stood the test of time for all generations and will do until the end of time. Well said. Jack, give give us your website one more time. We're going to be out of time in about 37 seconds. www.jackgresham.com. 
Thank you. And LiveForAll.org. And um, we're going to be hearing more from Frank. He's going to come back and visit us in May. So we'll be seeing you then. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for your input. Just absolutely brilliant. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy it very much. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jack, so much for being my guest. It was a wonderful book, 18 Billion. Please read it. And I will be back here next week on a, for another Mission Unstoppable. Thank you, Thanks everybody. Good luck to you wherever you are in the world. Uh, <laughs> good night or good morning. Take care. Bye-bye.